This is the Australian Hunting Podcast, hunting, shooting and fishing radio on the AHP Digital Radio Network. Visit us at australianhuntingpodcast.com.au. Sit back, relax and enjoy. Here's the host of the show, Jason Selms. Welcome back to AHP. Thanks for joining me. I've got a fantastic show coming up for you today. Uh, I know a lot of people that listen to my show. Some of them agree fully 100% with me on self-defense. Some wholeheartedly disagree. And there's also others on the fence that they're not sure about self-defense. They're not 100% on it. They're not not really interested in it, but they're not really sure. They don't really have a problem with it, but they're just unsure about the legalities of self-defense, whether it would actually work, would it open up a, a bigger can of worms. Uh, than we currently already have with crime in this country. So I guess this podcast is directed to the people that disagree with self-defense and the ones that are on the fence about self-defense. Because this is a story, and I've got my guest, he's going to be on in just a few moments. His name is Mr. Donald Brook. Now, Azam Nabulsi, age 31, sometime in 2011, entered the property of Mr. Don Brook. They uh, met up in the lounge room at some stage, resulting... Uh, in an altercation which resulted in the death of Mr. Nabulsi. Don had to wait three years before his fate was known in regards to this case. Uh, So I want you to have a good long listen to this podcast. Uh, Don is an absolutely fantastic guy. Uh, And when I spoke to him on the phone and I first rang him up, quite an interesting story. Uh, I rang him up and I said, I saw him on Facebook and I thought, is that Don Brook, Don Brook? Uh, So I decided to send him a message, but I don't think he checked his... Uh, Facebook messages. So I decided to add him on Facebook. He added me uh, and I posted on his timeline and I said, Don, check your inbox. Anyway, so he checked his inbox. He finally got back to me uh, and I remember speaking to him on the phone and he said to me, uh, I'm not the uh, bench rest shooter from Newcastle if that's the guy you're actually looking for. And I said, no, no, no. Are you Don Brook that had the issue in 2011 regarding self-defense? And he said, yes, that's me. And I said, well, absolutely, you are the guy I'm looking for. And uh, this is a great show, so I hope you enjoy it. Uh, It's a story about self-defense. It's a story about that we should have a right to self-defense with firearms at the bare minimum at this stage in the home. Uh, Concealed carry, I guess, is a debate for another day. But this is just, you know, it really hits home for me, something that's very, very close to my heart. And I hope you get a lot out of this story. I think it's a great story, and I'm glad. Yeah, to the bottom of my heart that I was able to get this interview with Don. So this is a, sorry, I should say, first off, without further ado, this is a story about self-defense with Don Brook. This is Rob Fickling from Beyond the Divide and Maroka 30, and you're listening to the Australian Hunting Podcast. All right, welcome back to the Australian Hunting Podcast. Um, he was one of my special guests, a really, really important guest I wanted to talk to today. I think it's very important. I've got, is it Don? Do we say Don? Donald? Yes. How do we say Don? Don. We've got Don Brook, and uh, we're going to have a chat today about, about, about a very interesting story that uh, happened to Don. I think it's a very, very important uh, story, definitely a ve- very important podcast, I think, talking uh, about self-defense with Don. And um, Don, first off, how are you? And thanks for coming to my house to have a chat with me today. I appreciate it. Thanks for inviting me, Jason. It's uh, good to have the opportunity to tell my story to the other shooters out there. No, fantastic, mate. I mean, mate, first off, I want to find out who is Don Brook? Uh, who is he? What does he do? Has he got a family? 
just tell, tell me about yourself, where you grew up. Just tell me about who is Don Brook. Born in Sydney, grew up in Sydney, 30 years on the railways. I took up shooting just before the, the Milpera massacre and straight after that Rand started changing the gun laws and uh, I noticed uh, people down at the range walking around with uh, the legislation in their hands so I thought, well, I can do that too. So I went out and bought the <laughs> gun laws and started reading it and I realised how much power the Commissioner of the of Police had. So I thought, well, that's just too much power, and I've been interested in the gun laws ever since. Did your parents shoot? Did they? Did no. Dad shoot or anything no. like that? How did you get involved? How did you want to get involved, I guess, in, 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 in the legislation and firearms? What interested you in shooting? I mean, we all get into it for very different ways. I can't really say. I was into photography before that, and <laughs> I'd, uh, yeah. I had cameras and lenses, like the old days, SLR cameras before digital, and I had slides. I was, slides were the cheapest, so I was into that. But oh, I, I don't really know. Maybe it was just the, the, the movies on the TV or something like that. And uh, I just started buying shooting magazines and looking at uh, different things. I, I had bumped into people on the job who were shooters. And they uh, they had showed me their magazines, uh, whatever they were, Australian Shooter or whatever. And uh, I just uh, just uh, drifted that, uh, that way. And I taught myself about... Uh, Reloading book, bought the Hornady uh, reloading book and taught myself how to reload and learned all about the various uh, uh, aspects of our sport, cartridge collection, uh, black powder, pistol, shotgun, and uh, I, uh, I joined clubs, joined associations, got out to the range, learned uh, learned by my mistakes, went hunting, and uh, uh, so there was a lot to learn in the, in shooting. Yeah. Any, any, any brothers? Do you have any brothers that went shooting or anything no. like that or no? No, no. As far as I know, I'm the only one in the family. Yeah, what did you enjoy? Like, what did you? Well, did you get into uh, rifle shooting first? Did you get into like you know, shotguns? Like, I enjoy shotguns. Did you get into uh, pistol shooting? What sort of t- just the, the whole thing? What 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 did Don enjoy? What did he look forward to shooting if he if he got time? I didn't uh, not enjoy any of it, but uh, there's no joy in uh, competition target shooting. Uh, <laughs> my God, wouldn't you? <laughs> Uh, I, I used to shoot four days a week when I What is shot. it like office politics, is it? Everyone, you know? No, it's just not being able to, to, to get into the high grades. I was uh, in four ball shooting, I was C grade and uh, try and try and try. And I got into B grade once and in uh, air rifle shooting, I was in, uh, started in E grade, uh, A, B, C, D, E, E, then got into D grade. I think I got into C grade in, uh, uh, for a while in air rifle shooting, but it's. Uh, it's all heartache and pain in uh, in uh, competition target shooting. Uh, I got into the, we we made our club a pistol club when the laws changed, and we didn't have to be affiliated with the APA. We affiliated through the APA and became uh, a pistol club. And then very late, uh, uh, I was uh, invited out to Cecil Park and uh, tried uh, skeet shooting. And uh, I think I'd uh, I would have been a better shotgunner than a rifle shooter. I seem to take to that uh, a bit better, but. Uh, uh, and I enjoyed it, and uh, but uh, I got into that right at uh, right at the end. I'm nearly sixty now, so. What what do you think about the, the the community now? Do you think I mean you're obviously around you know before 1996. I mean, what were your thoughts uh, on the gun laws then? I mean, especially compared to what you're seeing today. I mean, it's a very different beast, isn't it? Probably from back in the you know what the 70s and 80s compared to say now in 2016, wouldn't you say? Well, the whole purpose of the uh, the gun laws before, uh, when uh, Unsworth uh, banned semi-autos, I took my semi-autos to uh, Queensland with the idea of selling them, selling them to a sporting shooter up there for a dollar. 
and uh, <laughs> a dollar. Wow, yeah, what and, a bargain! And buying <laughs> buying them back if Unsworth lost the election, and Unsworth did lose the election. But I couldn't find anyone uh, up there who'd buy them off me for a dollar. But uh, at the time, they didn't have a shooter's license in uh, Queensland. And uh, I talked to a, uh, a gun shop owner up there. And the gun shop owner I spoke to was the, uh, the chap who sold the guns to Schmidt, a, a German tourist who came out and went mad and shot a few people in the Northern Territory in Queensland. Right, right. And he said all the shooter's license uh, can do is uh, tell the police... Uh, the uh, address of the last known owner of a gun, if they find the gun, if they find the gun. So basically, that's all the uh, that's all uh, gun laws can do. If honest people buy a gun, they produce proof of name and address. And if that gun is used in a uh, robbery and the police find it, all the police can do is trace that gun back to the last legal owner. So every other aspect of the gun laws is designed to encourage people to give up the sport and discourage people from taking up the sport. That's its only purpose. And I've read articles in the United St- uh, from, uh, from United States sources that said all the gun laws uh, in the United States uh, from the 19th century uh, onward were designed to keep the guns out of the hands of blacks and poor whites. Yeah. So yeah. It, it's always been a political purpose uh, with the gun laws. They serve no useful purpose because the, the common law crimes of robbery and murder and uh, assault... Uh, have been on uh, the books for uh, before there were firearms. Nothing has changed about those common law crimes. Whether you commit it with a club or your fists or a knife or a gun, those laws were on the books for five or six hundred years or more, more than five or six hundred years. So mm. nothing has changed. The gun laws are... Uh, uh, a fiction, a political fiction. And we just saw at the time of recording this podcast on Saturday today, what is it, the uh, 16th of uh, July, we just saw yesterday, I mean, the, the, the Nice attacks, didn't we? It just doesn't take a firearm. We saw someone drive a truck uh, down the middle of some road somewhere and, and potentially I think it's up to 80, I think there might even be higher than 80 at the time of uh, recording this podcast. just goes to show you don't need a firearm if you actually want to kill people. And what have we seen in, in Paris, Dom? We've seen 140 dead in Paris. We've seen, was it 13 or 14 in the Charlie Hebdo attacks? And now we've just seen another 80. Um, yeah, some of them involving firearms, two of them involving firearms, one of them not involving firearms. I mean, there are plenty of ways to kill people, aren't there? There are, and it's a, it's a tragedy. I don't have the answer to the world's problems, but I know that uh, defenselessness, defenselessness is no answer to uh, aggression. Being defenceless encourages aggression. It doesn't discourage aggression. Yep. The Israelis uh, uh, take a different attitude. The, 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 the Israeli government trusts their own people with guns and uh, Israeli citizens walk the streets with guns and they take a personal responsibility for the defence of their communities and their nation. But uh, the government trusts the people and the people trust the government. Where else does that happen? Do you think, yeah, this is an interesting uh, situation here, very, very, very good you actually brought that up. Do you think, and I actually wrote to a police minister here in New South Wales, Troy Grant, and I remember to, uh, asking him, I, I said, you know, there seems to be a divide, you know, between the police you know, and the shooting community, which there shouldn't be. The shooting community should be working together. Do you think there's a divide between uh, the police and, and, and gun owners? I, you rarely hear uh, expressions of uh, uh, opinion from the police, whether it's personal opinion or, uh, or departmental opinion. Uh, you hear more from politicians, and politicians seem to live in a society of their own. They live in a world of their own. It's them and us. They, they don't seem to be associated with the, the real world. As far as the police authorities are concerned, you'll, you'll hear statements, uh, but uh, I, I don't really know what they think. But I do know what uh, 
some of the politicians think, because they make the laws, and the laws are an expression of what they do think. And the laws are uh, just divorced from reality. Mm. Do you do any? Do you get to shoot much these days no. and stuff like no, that? I've been unemployed you? for many years, and uh, you need money to shoot. Uh, but I'm still the secretary of a, uh, my club, and I do administrative work with the club. Yep. So, you, have you made a lot of friends in the in the shooting community still today? You think you made a lot of friends? You think it's a tight knit community? What do you think? I think uh, the, I I wouldn't describe it that uh, as tight knit. Uh, it's something in common Australians have. If they're shooters, I can go to Queensland or South Australia or Victoria, and if I meet other shooters, we've got something in common, regardless <laughs> yeah. of their social structure, their ethnic background or whatever. But uh, yeah. as far as the uh, – I don't want to get into the politics of uh, the shooting movement. Uh, uh, that's uh, – well, uh, that that's uh, that's another topic. That's another <laughs> topic. Right. Mate, I know you've – I've seen you posting uh, – <clears throat> so excuse me – on my podcast – uh, yeah, fairly regularly, and you've and being involved and getting into the conversation. Um, and this, because this podcast is about self defence and your story, uh, is self defence? Do you think, obviously, before your story and now after, which we'll we'll discuss your story in a minute. Um, do you think you know, you're something passionate about self defence? What did you think about self defence before and now after your story, which we'll go into in just a few minutes? I've uh, been influenced by what I've uh, read and seen. Uh over the years, uh, uh, I've been informed by uh, uh, authorities and uh, comments and attitudes from uh, overseas and within this country. Self-defence is essential. It's a human right. If you're not taught it, if you're not taught that, if you have to find it out yourself, some people just don't find that out. There's The majority of Australians probably don't believe they have the right to self-defence. They don't believe they're being discriminated against by their own governments. Uh, I read a terrific book. People say that we don't have the same history as the United States uh, as far as fighting the uh, native populations and uh, things like that. Uh, there's a great book out there by an author called Jeffrey Reynolds called Frontier, and he described the uh, resistance put up by the Aboriginal populations to white settlement, and they fought the white settlers for every inch of this country. Uh, two towns in uh, Australia were nearly evacuated because of... Uh, they feared the Aborigines were going to attack. It was, I think, it was Gladstone in Queensland and Port Lincoln in South Australia. Uh, people were afraid to leave the towns. They'd uh, uh, c- uh, transport and communication was by horse and cart, and the Aborigines, Aborigines would come and spear the horses and kill the drivers of the, the carts. They'd attack settlers. Uh, uh, the governor of Western Australia uh, issued an order that all all settlers uh, should go armed about their their business. Uh, we had a similar history to uh, the uh, people of the United States, but that uh, that history is not taught in our schools. We're taught other things in our schools. Yeah, yeah. So, uh, what what is my attitude on self defence? It's a human right. It's uh, it's immoral and wrong for a government to uh, take a deny the means of self defence to the uh, the population. We should have the same rights as Americans. Give me give me a good reason why Australians should have less rights than Americans. Very interesting. Do you think? Um, a lot of people, there is a discussion at the moment, uh, people talking about, you know, non-lethal forms of self-defence, at least to start. Now, do you think it should be, you know, whatever we choose for our rights to self-defence, whether that be, you know, a firearm, whether that be pepper spray, whether that be a taser? Do you think it's ultimately up to us to make the decision what best suits us? Well, I don't think there should be a... Um... Or just self-defence, flat out, that's it. Whatever you means you decide... You, know, you want to use. I don't think there should be artificial financial uh, restrictions on uh, the means to self-defence. Uh, as a secretary of a shooting club, I can tell you, working people, poor people, 
have been excluded from uh, owning uh, firearms because of the cost of getting into the sport. So if you do, the, our gun laws discriminate against the poor. As far as the other means of self-defence, uh, it, uh, it shouldn't be questioned. I've heard that uh, you, under New South Wales law, a bulletproof vest is a prohibited article. It, yeah. it, the, uh, gun laws are absurd. Anything that, any law that restricts a person defending themselves, an honest person from defending themselves, is absurd and wrong and shouldn't be there. Would you like to advertise on one of the most tech-savvy mediums on the internet? Then why don't you advertise with us on the Australian Hunting Podcast? If you have a product or business that you would like to promote, then we would love to hear from you. Become one of our partner advertisers by calling Jason on 0425 881 967 or email australianhuntingpodcast at gmail.com. Do you have dull, blunt or badly sharpened knives that couldn't skin a cat? At Scary Sharp, we use a multi-step grinding system and will hand sharpen your blades to a precise edge. Our process of sharpening knives will have your blades splitting hairs for a surprisingly low cost. Not only do we sharpen knives, but we also sharpen scissors, clippers, garden tools, arrowheads, axes or anything that holds an edge. We are located close to Canberra and we also have a mail-in service. Visit Scary Sharp on Facebook or call Bob on 0410 432 852 and find out how we can meet your sharpening needs. Scary Sharp. If it cuts, we can sharpen it. Mate, I want to go into your story because I think it's, I think it's very important, this one. Uh, and I've, I've, I'm glad I'm, and thank you for coming and sharing the story with me. I'm glad when I sort of added you on Facebook. And I, I remember when I saw your name, Don, on Facebook, I thought, Don Brook, where do I know that name from? And then I saw you were, you were friends in common with James Walsh, who is the president of the SSAA Sydney branch. And um, I think I might have been at the AGM. I think it was maybe the, the New South Wales AGM. And James was in. I said, you've got a guy, Don Brook. I said, on your page, and, and I think he said, yeah, that, that's Don Brook. And then I thought, I'm going to get in contact with Don. I, 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 I was pretty sure you were going to say no to me of coming over and participating in my podcast. So I'm glad you're here now. But um, I, want, I want to get into your story. <clears throat> now, sometime in 2011, there was a, there was a fellow. His name, I think he's, if I'm getting this right, Azam Nabulsi, I think his name is. Uh, he was a 31-year-old career criminal. This was sometime in 2011. Now, he, he entered your house and... I want you to sort of tell the story. I want you to, you know, time of day, what happened, you know, if, you can, if you can remember what you were doing at that time, um, yeah, and, and walk us through that experience, obviously what happened, uh, and then we'll go from there. So in, in your own words, sort of, Don, give us a bit of a, a, bit of a yeah, tell us the story about what happened that sort of unfateful day. Well, I was sitting in uh, my garage. The door to my garage was open. I can't see the house from inside the garage. It was a windy day, a lot of noise. I'm in the habit of leaving the back door of the house open. And I, I'd finished what I was doing in the garage and I... So this was at night? Was this afternoon, morning? Uh, afternoon. Okay, right. So about three, four o'clock or... Something like that. It was still, yeah. still plenty of light. Still plenty of light, right. I went back inside the house and went into the, uh, the bedroom and uh, there was all this stuff spread out over the bed. And I thought, well, that wasn't there when I... I left the house. I thought, what's going on? Where did all this stuff come from? Then I walked back, back out into the hallway and I looked up into the uh, living room and here's a bloke in the living room bending down over some stuff. So, Did, did he see you at that stage? No, he had his back to me, so I walk, walked up to him. And, how, how, uh, how did you get... I wonder how you got into the house without him sort of hearing you because you would have just been, 
you know, walking in, you wouldn't have thought anyone was in there. I'm surprised he sort of didn't hear you when you came out from the rear yard. It's a, it was a windy day. There was a lot of noise mm, right. from the wind. So I walked up to him and I said something to him, like, what do you say to a burglar? I don't know. I don't remember what I said to him. And uh, he turned around and uh, confronted me and uh, he pulled something out of his uh, jacket. I can't remember what it was uh, at the time, but uh, I, I must have imagined it was a weapon. And uh, I, I had a pocket knife in my pocket, so I pulled out my pocket knife and... Uh, he must have taken a swing at me with his left arm because I, I stabbed him in the uh, the bicep of his uh, left arm and then I punched him in the, the chest, uh, middle of the chest, with a knife. No reaction whatsoever. He just stood there. Oh, my God, what am I dealing with here? Anyway, and then he just looked past me into the hallway, so I stepped, took one step aside and he walked past me into the kitchen. So like nothing had happened, like nothing had happened? No reaction. So mind you, so just to clarify, you, you stabbed him in the arm and then in the chest... And he's just walked past you like nothing's wrong. No reaction whatsoever. Nothing. Wow, unbelievable. Nothing. Right, right. Anyway, I realised I'd done him a, a serious injury, and when he was in the kitchen, I followed him into the kitchen. I said, look, uh, you hurt bad. I'll call, I'll call an ambulance. I don't know why I said it, but I did. Anyway, and then he walked into the laundry to the back door, and he's getting out the back door, and I said it to him again. And, and was uh, he not, is he not saying anything to you throughout this period? Is he, does he look like he's hurting, or is he just, just grabbing his... No, nothing. Nothing no. at all. Wow. No. Uh, he uh, he just uh, he didn't say anything at the back door from memory, and he walked out uh, the back door to the side gate. I walked out of the back door, and uh, I think I said the same thing. Then come back, I'll call you in the ambulance. He he looked at me and said, "I'm gonna I'm gonna come back and fuck you." Anyway, I thought, well, that's nice. If that's your attitude, I'm not gonna do anything for you. So, but, but I thought something in me said, I've got to follow this guy to see what's what he's doing. I've got to keep my eyes on him. So I followed him. Uh, so, yeah. mind you, going back to that, sorry, I didn't mean to interrupt you, going back there, so you studied once in the arm and once in the chest, twice? We had a 10-second fight. Mm, mm. 10 seconds, right. if that. He, I followed him out the side gate around the side of the house, across the front of the house, and he walked over to a car and got in the passenger door of a car. Right. I thought, my God, he's not alone. So I thought to myself, I've got to get the uh, license number of the car and uh, to report it to the police. So I walked towards the car. It's daylight. Uh, I wasn't far away, but you were... Uh, shock or panic or something like that i headed towards the car then i realized it had no rear number plate so i tried to remember the color and the type and the make of the car that drove off slowly and i uh, called the police then and uh uh waited in the front yard for the police to come so what i had was a 10 second fight with a bloke it would have taken a minute or two minutes to walk out of the house ran to his car he got in the car and drove away and that was it 10 seconds the whole thing took 10 seconds uh, for the fight and uh, a minute for this guy to walk out of the house and get into a car and I spent the next two years in hell waiting for uh, things to happen. I can't believe, I mean, he just, he just walked past you. I mean, like nothing. Like nothing, no reaction whatsoever. Unbelievable. No reaction. So how long did it, obviously you've rang the police, so there's been a confrontation. Um, you know, obviously you've said, I've stabbed a guy. Yeah. Um, how long did, t- obviously they've come out fairly quickly, obviously, I would presume. Oh, 10, 10 or 15 minutes, something like oh, that. Oh, really? Okay, yeah. And what happened when, so the police have come out. What, what's the first thing they did? They're asking, obviously, what's going on? Tell yeah. us what's happening. Yeah, that's it, though. They just said, uh, I, 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 can't, I can't remember uh, what I said to uh, the triple O call, uh, but someone played it back and I don't remember some of the things I said. Uh, we probably went into the house with the police and I showed them what happened and uh, uh, they wrote, uh, took their notes and they took the knife and they said, uh, well, we need you to come into the station to uh, make a, a statement. So I uh, I said, okay, and without thinking, I just 
my car must have been parked on the road beside the house. So I just jumped into my car and uh, drove into Bankstown. But I think they expected me to go in into Bankstown with a, in a police car. Right. So the the sort of eyebrows went up. I just remembered that, and I got into the car and I drove into Bankstown and uh, by myself and uh, parked the car and walked into the police station. So so I didn't ask about locking up the house or anything like that, and. Uh, I'm in the police station then, and two detectives were interviewing me and asking me about this or that or the other thing. And uh, one of them said to me, uh, "Can we get your permission for a search warrant for the uh, uh, the two garages?" I said, "Oh, I, look, I don't mind you searching the house, but he never came into the uh, garage. I don't. There's no need for you to go in there. I've got two garages in the in the property." And uh, they said, "Oh, we'd like to look into into the garages." Well, I said, "Well, there's no need. He didn't come in there." And they said, oh, "Okay, well, go and get a search warrant anyway." And then the, oh, right. the, the female. See, did, did, at this stage, did you feel like you know you were you were on trial here, sort of thing? Because no, no, they were very polite and very uh, pleasant about it. Uh, but then, uh, did they, at this stage, sorry, Don, did that? Obviously, we don't know what's happened to this guy yet. Nothing's happened. This is all uh, going down to the police station. Was that the same day? Was that like an hour or two after the incident? That probably less than an hour. And uh, okay. as far as I knew, there's a guy out there uh, who'd broken into my house or came into my house, and he's uh, threatened to kill me. So. I wasn't. Yeah. Uh, I was a bit apprehensive that this mm. bloke was still out there. And as far as I knew, like I didn't know whether I'd injured him uh, badly. I thought. I thought uh, later. I thought maybe uh, the, the knife didn't uh, go through his clothes, or, mm. or or didn't didn't go through straight or something. Anyway, uh, uh, we're sitting at the table, and the uh, the three female, female detective leaned across to me and said, "Well, you, you know, you're under arrest, don't you?" I said, "Oh, that's great." You know, <laughs> did you say for what? For what exactly? I mean, I'm I'm the victim here. I well, mean, I don't. I, I, I wasn't. I guess uh, you're a bit probably dishevelled at the time and didn't you know a bit. No doubt, emotional. I wouldn't blame you. You know, definitely wouldn't blame you after confronting someone in your home. Definitely. Well, I've been involved with the uh, the, the sport and all the uh, news reports about the sport for many years, so I probably wasn't surprised, but I was pretty disappointed uh, that uh, I'd been uh, an honest citizen and I'd been placed under arrest because. As far as I was concerned, I didn't do anything wrong. No. Somebody came into my house and I, I you know, I, I reacted. So uh, I didn't think I'd done what anything. What they actually, do you remember what they, under arrest for what exactly? No. For what exactly, do you remember? No, no, I never said anything like that. No. Then they took me downstairs and uh, put me into something that looked like a phone booth. They had all these little cells that looked like phone booths. There's only room to sit down in them. They've got a glass door. So I just sat in there for, uh, uh, that, that was the only place they put me in. So I was there for... Uh, Six or seven hours in this phone booth, and they uh, they they said we're putting you in here for your own protection, and uh, they uh, they bought me uh, dinner, they bought me a McDonald's hamburger and a coffee, and uh, <laughs> did they right? Yeah, yeah, right, right. Everyone was very nice to me. All the police, the, the, all the other prisoners uh, seemed to be uh, Lebanese guys who'd beaten up their wives. So yeah. right, right, right. <laughs> they all seem to have the same story. Right. So you were there. So you there. So what time did you end up? Getting out at not you get it out at the same night or what they do to they release you? Were you allowed to go home? I mean, you were telling me before just to go into that. that you know, you you, you were, were you were you the only person home at the time when this happened? You, yes. Yep. Yeah. And, and you said you're married. Got what? You got a wife? Mm, yeah. Yeah. Right. Okay. So, what time they released? Did they allow you? Obviously, they've cordoned off your home. Obviously, were you allowed to go back to your home or what did you do? What did you do from there? Well, uh, if you're in the cell, you don't know what's happening outside in the real world. You, you're just sitting in the cell, and about ten thirty, they came up to me and said, uh, "This chap has died in hospital." 
They, 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 oh, the, the the guy that you oh yeah. they oh they they finally found him. So someone, yeah. what happened? Did they? Did you, I think some guy dumped him. Is that correct? Or yeah, some yeah, guy, the guy yeah. that dropped him off? The driver uh, pushed him out of the car at uh, Villawood, I think, and then drove off and left him there. Right. So at ten thirty, they they came into the cell. Uh, I think they come and ask me questions before that in the in the cell, this phone booth cell, and I can't remember. It was a few years ago now, but uh, about 10.30 they came around and told me that this chap has died. And I said to him, uh, I said to them, well, uh, well, I suppose that makes it pretty serious then. I suppose you'll have to arrest me and I'll be here for a while. And they, they said, oh, not, not, not necessarily. So I didn't know what they meant by that. I thought it was pretty serious, uh, you know, if you had a fight. When, with you, the when you decided, uh, it's difficult for me to sort of answer the questions too here, you know, when, when you sort of found out he died, what did, 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 did it, you know, did you, did you think, oh, you know, obviously, it was overwhelming, I'm guessing. What did you think? Did no, it, no. It's not like the movie. It's not, not for me anyway. It's, uh, I, I didn't think I'd done anything wrong. Uh, <clears throat> of course, if you... Well, I, no, I, I, I wasn't uh, upset or traumatised or anything like that. If you have a fight, a fight with anyone, whether it's a fist fight or anything, you're, you're a bit shocked, of course. Mm, yeah. But uh, I didn't think I'd done anything wrong. There was uh, no remorse or anything like that. Uh, I did what I had to do, and uh, it, it was all instinct anyway. Like yeah. I said, it lasted 10 seconds. Mm-hmm. So I'm not going to uh, blame myself for doing uh, what I had. My God, I was a, a burglar in my house, you know, and uh, he threatened me with a, a weapon. Uh, at the time, I couldn't think of anything like that, but I thought of it afterwards, and I thought, There's, I've got nothing to be uh, ashamed or sorry about. You're right, you're right, 100%. So what happened then? Did you end up going home? Did you end up... Um Obviously, they said, we well, don't have to be here forever, obviously. Did you jump going home? Did they, they, they allow you to go home? Or obviously, they cordoned off the, the property? Or what happens there? Well, uh, I didn't know what was going on in the outside world. All I knew was, knew was, for most of the time, there was a chap out there who threatened to kill me. And then they told me the, uh, that he died in hospital. And uh, then uh, they said, well, we're going to let you go in a, in a short while. And it turns out that uh, what happens when something like this happens is that your family can't get into your house. The police take over your house and the family can't get in. No one can get into your house. And as part of the police procedure, they, I think they fingerprinted me and took DNA tests, a swab of my mouth. But they also took all my clothes. So my uh, friends and relatives had to go out. They couldn't get into the house to get me any clothes. So they had to go out and buy me a new set of clothes, shoes, everything. Uh, so they luckily we've got a 24-hour Kmart around. They went there and bought me some clothes and uh, they let me out of uh, jail about 11.30 at night. So basically uh, I didn't know what was going on in the outside world until uh, I walked out of the police station at 11.30 at night. Then we went back to the house and uh, there were detectives still there and we, this was the first time we'd have been allowed back in. And uh, so uh, we got back to the house and... Uh, the detective said, can you tell us what's been taken? And uh, people were saying, well, the computer's gone, this is gone, that's gone. And I said, well, how can that be? Because he walked out of the house empty-handed. And that's when we realised that he'd been making trips from the house to his car while I was sitting in the garage. Oh, right. So I, it, I thought you were going to say it was the police took all your stuff. No. Or like for forensic evidence or whatever they call it these days. No, well, it was a windy day. Like I said, it was a windy day. It was noisy and I was sitting in the garage doing what I was doing and... Uh, this bloke had been making trips to the uh, garage. And then the police told us, uh, I don't know whether it was that night or, or later, that uh, I was the uh, fifth house he'd knocked off that day in daylight. I was right. the fifth house he'd burglarised. 
months later we were able to go and to Bankstown Police Station and identify our property from all the other property. And I said, uh, who owns all this other property to the police? And they said, well, we don't know who owns it. So we got our property back, but there was heaps of stuff there that this guy had knocked Did over. they end up finding, obviously, the guy in the car, no CCTV footage of a guy getting dropped off. Obviously, it had no plates. They ever, they ever find the other guy? No. They told me that uh, this uh, the driver dumped the burglar... Then at Villawood and then drove back to Auburn. There's a, there's a hospital at Auburn, but he, he wasn't uh, humane enough to do that and uh, take him to the hospital. So he just dumped him out of the car, drove back to Auburn, parked in the driveway, met another member of the, the gang, and they unloaded all the stolen property out of the boot of his car into the boot of the uh, his uh, Confederate colleague's car. Yep. And uh, when just when they finished, the police walked up the driveway. Just when they finished doing it. So they, uh, the police at that time didn't get back any of the stolen property, but they got the car and the driver. And uh, 24 hours or so later, he uh, he started cooperating with the police or uh, confessed, or, and uh, he uh, he took them to where he'd hidden the, uh, the stun gun. It turns out it was a stun gun, and he'd taken that off the body of the, uh, the burglar. Oh, did he? Right, <laughs> right. And then he hid it somewhere. Uh, apparently it wasn't with all the stolen property that they moved uh, right. from one boot to the other. So they'd uh, the police found that. But up until then, up until the time that they found it, it was only my word that uh, this guy had some sort of weapon. I couldn't – at the time, I, I couldn't remember what it was. All I know was he pulled something out of his jacket. Um, uh, to my mind, it was some sort of weapon, so I defended myself. So, But uh, the, when the police found that uh, stun gun, the driver – took them to where he'd hidden it, uh, uh, the, the police must have realised that I was telling the truth then. So, uh, but uh, that was uh, like two or three days uh, later, I was already out of jail by then and uh, back home. So the back police the, the police came around several times to search the property afterwards in the daytime and dusted everywhere for fingerprints and uh, and then there was the media attention. Uh, we were surrounded by media. The, yeah, uh, the yeah. media was on the, or surrounded the house and... Uh, and the uh, current uh, uh, the, the the current attitude is, if you're in a situation like this, don't talk to the media. Don't talk to the media. Well, I don't know where it comes from, but uh, if we if we go into this uh, a bit later, uh, I found out later the hard way that uh, in a situation like this, uh, uh, for an ordinary person, the media is your only friend. The authorities are out to, to get you. It's their business to prosecute you and convict you uh, of a crime. So the authorities, the government, uh, is not your friend. The government is your uh, enemy. Looking for outdoor equipment for your next adventure? At Aussie Outdoor Gear, you can find cooking equipment, camo clothing for kids, backpacks, camo accessories, and much more. We cater for your hunting, fishing, camping, hiking, and other outdoor pursuits with our unique product range. AussieOutdoorGear.com.au Quality gear at affordable prices. Do you hunt deer and want to learn the correct techniques for a quality wall mount and premium eating venison? SSAA Sydney Branch provides hunter education courses to help you become a better hunter and to utilise harvested game in the most effective way possible. Course content includes gunning, butchering and caping from experienced hands-on instructors using locally harvested deer. There is no gear required and also includes a barbecue lunch. 
Courses are held every third Sunday of each month with an 8am sign-in for a 9am start. Course running time is approximately 6 hours and the venue is Silverdale Rifle Range. Cost is $50 per person, so call Andy Mallon at Silverdale Rifle Range on 02-4653-1440 or visit sydney.net. How were you? How did you find it when you were dealing with the police? Um, how long afterwards before they obviously they they charge you on the night, or this was some time after the event? No charges were ever laid. No, so no charges were ever laid. How did you know when they were, when they eventually never laid charges? I know because I've followed this over over a couple of years, and um, I know you had a, like a long wait. Um, were the police wanting to charge you, uh, or wh- how come it took so long? to find out whether any charges would be laid and whether you'd face any sort of criminal charges? The, because uh, someone had died, the matter had to go to the coroner's court and the police had to make out a report to the coroner. The police were the investigating uh, agents. They investigated the crime. They're the professional investigators. They said in their report, uh, as far as they were concerned, I'd done nothing wrong. What happens at a uh, coroner's court is they interview, the coroner interviews people. The, uh, they'd had the driver there. And oh, he, so, so they, they did catch up with him, obviously. Yes, the driver uh, of the car. Well, the yep. same day they mm. they walked up the driveway the same day and identified right. the car. And uh, yep. I don't know whether they arrested him that day or uh, the next day he came down and confessed. But uh, they they had him uh, before before sundown. That, I mean, what uh, sort of friend is he? I guess for, for dumping you off at a hospital. I mean, uh, no, he dumped uh, he dumped the burglar on the side of the road. He drove home to Auburn where there was a hospital. Yeah, so, right. Mm. So, uh, the, well, obviously he's no friend. He's uh, criminals. There's no law that makes criminals. That's so. right. You're right. So the police, uh, the coroner's court, the coroner investigates uh, the matter by uh, uh, examining witnesses, and uh, uh, she's assisted by the. Uh, she was a woman. She was assisted by the uh, crown solicitor. There were other people there. People representing the police and. Uh, I can't remember who else, but there was one representative there representing the interest of the uh, the police. And uh, the police, of course, who investigated the matter, they were called to give evidence. The uh, driver was there. He was called to give evidence, and he was allowed to uh, uh, give evidence under some section of the Act which uh, which allowed him to say whatever he liked and nothing he said at the coronial inquest could be used against him uh, in court later. And... Uh, my lawyer advised me to do the same, uh, and I, I instructed him to, to, to say that to the, uh, the coroner, that uh, if the uh, driver can get that, uh, uh, invoke that section of the Act, uh, I'll invoke it too, uh, so I'll give evidence, uh, so long as nothing that I say can be used against me. Well, when uh, my uh, solicitor made uh, that, that application to the, uh, the, the coroner's court, uh, she said, well, the, the, the coroner said, well, I, if that's the case, I don't want to hear what you have to say. She said, I don't think I want to hear what you have to say. You can sit down. So I thought, well, that, what's, what's going wow. on here? Anyway, wow. then, then we sat down and then uh, uh, my, my uh, legal representative, Ali Halani, uh, he said, he told me beforehand, uh, this is what's likely to happen. You'll probably uh, be let go uh, the, because you haven't done anything wrong. And, uh, but if uh, things go a bit pear-shaped, the coroner will say, I'm going to suspend uh, the inquest and refer the matter to the Director of Public Prosecutions. And uh, we're sitting in court, and uh, the next thing you know, the Crown Solicitor stood up and said, uh, Your Honour, I, I recommend you uh, suspend the uh, the inquest and refer the matter to the DPP. 
And the coroner said, okay, I accept that advice. I'll su- su- suspend the inquest and refer the matter to the DPP. Well, my God, we're, I was in shock, and I think my Ali was too, my solicitor, Ali Halani. We were in shock. Where did this come from? The police, there was nothing in the police uh, report to, to say I'd done anything wrong, and next thing you know, They've suspended the inquest. So is that why they wanted to do that? Because they wanted to get it over to the DPP to see if they could prosecute you. Is that right? That's it. Yeah. It was the Crown Solicitor and the the Crown Solicitor who made the suggestion and the the coroner accepted the suggestion and acted on it. But it certainly wasn't the police. Unbelievable, isn't it? This is unbelievable. During this time, you're thinking, I'm a victim here. I'm a victim of a, a, a you know a burglar, um, which has had some type of weapon. I mean, regardless whether he did or he didn't, it's not even the point. You know, you got someone in your house that you know obviously you know when you meet them in in the lounge room, you know wants to do you harm. Is obviously stealing your stuff. Um, you've defended yourself. I mean, did you feel like you were on trial a bit here? <laughs> I knew it when once they they said they've suspended the inquest and we're, we are referring the matter to the DPP. I thought, my God, that's. It was an ambush. We were ambushed. We were shocked. We had no warning this was coming. It came out of the blue. We had no reason to suspect it was coming. It was. Well, I was in shock. It took me a couple of days to work out that, okay, I've got to shake myself out of this and defend myself. That's when I started writing letters to the Premier, the, the Leader of the Opposition, the Attorney General, the Shadow Attorney General, and, uh, yeah, I, I got uh, Paul Lynch. I went and met Paul Lynch, the uh, Shadow Attorney General, in his office. That's when I realised that. I'd never spoken to the media before that. That's when I realised uh, I've got to defend myself here. Uh, by, by, uh, otherwise, I'll finish up like Karen Brown, the security guard who shot the um, yep, yep. shot the uh, attacker, and uh, she was bankrupted uh, defending herself. So I said, "Well, I've got to, I've got to do something to defend myself." That's when I realised I, uh, I'll go to the media and uh, try them. I've got no allies anywhere else. So, uh, but. What happened was uh, before the inquest, uh, before the coroner's court inquest, the media was uh, very interested in my case and all the uh, media outlets uh, were were interested and they demonstrated that by sending people to my house and calling me on the phone and and, uh, every time I went to an official uh, uh, meeting like the coroner's court, they were there to interview me. But once the coroner referred the matter to the DPP, no one came near me. The only news organisation, media organisation that showed any interest was Tracy Grimshaw and Stephanie Segroy from uh, A Current Affair. They never gave up on the uh, the the, uh, the story, and so I finally went to them. And well, sorry uh, to interrupt, Don. When, when you know after obviously the incident, the day of the incident, how long was it between the incident? Roughly, would you say when they actually referred it to the DPP? Was that a couple of weeks later, a couple of months, six months, twelve months later? When was that? No, well, the, the, it's, it goes from the incident to the coroner's court. Right. And uh, I think my uh, uh, Ali said, uh, Ali Halani, my solicitor said, it might take us a, a, a quick a quick decision. It might take uh, 12 months or something to the so, coroner's so court. So w- when they refer to the DPP, you say a couple of months after the incident? No, no. He said that that would take, uh, for the DPP to make a decision, it might take... As much as fifteen months, so we had to. Wait, yeah. I think we had to wait about a year before it went to the coroner's court, yep. and then wait another year for the right, DPP okay. to make a decision. So, so they basically after about a year, the the coroner's court have, have sent it on to the DPP, saying uh, you got they've passed the ball, half backed it over to the DPP. About a year afterwards, and then how, how long did you wait then before were they in contact with you? You heard nothing. What was this? What was the situation like now? Those couple of years, heard heard nothing. Uh, uh, 
basically, I, we just got notice to attend the coroner's court. And uh, then after, a, I don't think it was 15 months, it was less after the coroner referred the matter to the DPP. It was less time for the uh, DPP to make their decision, less than a year. But again, uh, we just got some brief note from the, uh, the DPP to say that they won't be proceeding. But really? uh, was I, that what was it like that day, Don? You know, were you were you feeling very relieved that you'd finally been vindicated? I guess. Well, uh, there, there there certainly was uh, relief that I because uh, you lose your future. You can't make any plans when you even before the the, the coroner's court. You you can't you don't know what's going to happen to your life, so you can't yeah. can't just go overseas or <laughs> maybe. Well, you know? They didn't put any travel restrictions on me, but. Uh, you you can't you don't know what your future is going to be. Your future is exactly. in the hands of someone else, and, and you you you're not free anymore. I wonder what it takes when they're looking at this stuff, Don. They've got it laid out in front of them. I mean, see, me it seems pretty clear cut. The police have already recommended a certain thing. You know, the coroner's referred it back to the DPP, and they're looking at it. I mean, how does it take a year to figure out we're not going to lay charges against this guy? This guy's a victim, and this is why I get on my page and I want people to listen to this show because. You know, this is the sort of stuff I talk about on the show. I hear it all the time, Don. You know, we've seen it on my page. We've seen it on other people's pages. Oh, well, why do you need for why do you need an item for self defence? Why do you need to defend yourself? You know, when's when have you ever needed to defend yourself? I mean, you're a guy sitting right in front of me that it, it's happened to a person that has been and had to wait years and put your life on hold, basically. I mean, what were those couple of even after the coroner referred it to the DPP? What was that couple of years like? You said you can't plan. It's just you, you're waiting for that day. You might get a letter in the mail saying we, you know, you're going to be going to court and you have to fight yourself against the manslaughter or who knows? With the, who knows? With the DPP, it could even be a murder charge. That's it. So you know, what, looking what, at 20, what, 15, 20 years in prison. I mean, I think they realised that that they can't. They got nothing here. You, you're clutching at straws. I mean, I couldn't see, mate. I tell you what, Don. I, I'm on a I'm on a panel of uh, jurors. Mate, no way I'm going to convict you, mate, any day of the week, I tell you. Yeah, but the point is the Crown Solicitor and the DPP get paid win or lose. So they'll run a case. They don't care if they win or lose. They still get paid. If they've got an excuse to run a case, they'll run a case. Karen Brown got off, but it bankrupted her. So the the DPP and the Crown Solicitor went bankrupted. If they lost the case, they wouldn't be fined. The, the, the DPP... Just go on to the next case. Yeah, they, they wouldn't have to pay the, the cost of the, the court and the cost of the uh, the other party. Yeah. How long... Good, good question. Interesting question for you. How long did you ever have to... Obviously, after the incident, you've gone back home. Things have, you know, well, you've, you know, obviously things have settled down a little bit somewhat, getting back to some sort of normality. Um, were you afraid they were going to come back to your house, these people? Obviously... You know, because I saw in the media, which uh, frankly I thought was a massive joke, you know, they are this, what's his name, Azam Nabulsi, whatever, 31-year-old career criminal, you know, he was a great kid, his parents said, the family were saying all this crap, which we know was a bunch of crap, he was a career criminal, and frankly I couldn't give a shit that he's dead, to be honest with you, I couldn't care less really, Uh, you know, frankly it's great someone's off the street, you know, that could hurt, potentially hurt somebody else. Um, yeah, were you afraid they were going to come back and and and, you know, and and get revenge or just you know, you know the family or did that enter your mind at any stage? Well, it, it still does. He had kids and they're going to grow up and they're going to ask where their father is and they, of course they're going to be told well the uh, that bloke who lived uh, down the street uh, killed him. So uh, I've got to worry about that. What how they'll take it? Uh, but as far as the local population, uh, some of the uh, the local population uh, uh, reacted adversely towards it. Uh, I was walking down the street and some bloke drove past and said, 
G'day, murderer. And uh, the cars, Unbelievable. You know, cars are driving past the house and... And uh, what was know, the support other than like that from friends or in the community? I mean, what about people that knew about it? Your neighbours, things like that. How was the support? Were they supportive of that, or you found, you know, people, you know, started to give you the blind eye sort of thing? You know, oh, keep away from him, or no, or you find you really got a lot of support uh, from the community. Uh, some uh, some neighbours did come around and express uh, support. Uh, 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 Yes, so, so uh, on uh, social media, uh, people expressed support, and I received that. Absolutely, yeah. Uh, I remember it was a big around that time. Yeah, yeah, yeah it was huge, yeah. yeah. Uh, as far as uh, – so uh, the neighbours uh, – uh, I did have support from the neighbours and, and the uh, the community, the wider community, and the uh, people who reacted adversely to it were uh, uh, erratic, irrational people, so I, I could tell they weren't uh, mainstream of, of any community. Mm-hmm. Talking about being in the house, how long were you in the house? Did you eventually have to move? Was it a safe move to you know, consider relocating, or were the police recommending any relocation? How long were you in that specific house after the after the fact? I uh, I can't remember uh, uh, how long uh, we were there, but uh, uh, my wife uh, couldn't uh, take it anymore. Uh, like we'd get knocks on the door at uh, three or four o'clock in the morning. Some people had come up and. Just knock on the door at two or three o'clock in the morning, and uh, uh, my wife would say, "What's that?" Well, I said, "Well, just ignore it, you know. Don't worry about it." And uh, mm. and uh, so uh, she, she couldn't take it anymore. Like I, I didn't worry me, you know. I, I wouldn't move for anyone, you know. Like <laughs> <laughs> if they wanted to wanted to fight over, I say, "Come on, boys." But anyway, uh, uh, she couldn't stand it, so we had to move. So, mm, no, very interesting stuff. Um, you know, you said, um, you know, talk about four, like, you know, in these situations, do you think, um, first off, being a, a, a firearms owner, yes, it's too expensive. I mean, did that, did this issue affect any chance of you ever, I mean, obviously no charges were laid, so I can't see why not, any ch- stopping you from getting a firearms license and any rejections or anything like that while it was going on, or did you have firearms at the time that were seized during this issue? No. As far as I know, the police didn't take uh, any of them. They certainly got into the safes. They got into the uh, the garage. They got into the safes, and they 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 they, they checked out that I uh, I, I was uh, met all the criteria for safekeeping. That they they examined that, and uh, I I did, and uh, uh, they didn't pick me up on anything. Uh, but they didn't take any guns or anything like that. No, really, uh, oh, very good. And as far as uh, licensing or nothing, no no no, no restrictions whatsoever. If this you know this situation that you went through um if this situation ever you know come up again do you think you'd, you would you react any differently do you think would you in hindsight i mean i know it happened so fast it's just you can't really act in those situations or you just act on what you're presented with there would you change anything from what happened people uh i mean obviously you'd hope the guy never came into your house i'm presuming that would have been a lot better, a better scenario but what would you change in regards to this situation well uh People uh, will say things to you. Oh, I'm, if this happened to me, I'd do this, and if this happened to me, I'd do that. the 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 truth is, uh, you uh, react by your instinct. There's no plan. You can't. Th- you don't have time to think. You just react by instinct. When these things happen, you just react. There's no plan. You can't plan for it. You can't plan. I'll do this. I'll do that. It just happens. Mm. And uh, a fight. Uh, if, Who's going to? Who can tell who's going to win a fight at the start of the fight? I, you know, I could have lost the fight. It was a ten-second fight. I could have lost. I could be dead on the, the floor of my own living room. 
no one's going no one can tell who's going to win a fight at the start of the fight mm. so uh, there, there's no plan there's no uh uh, thoughts, you don't have time to think, all you can do is react. Someone said to me, uh, uh, I was in, uh, went, went to a, uh, barrister and, uh, he said, uh, the barrister said, if this goes to court, you might be asked. I, I, as far as I know, I don't have to, uh, I have the right to silence. I don't have to give evidence at a, at a trial, but he said, you might be asked, uh, the barrister said, you might be asked, why didn't you run away? Did you have the opportunity to run away? Why didn't you run away? And, uh, I can't believe this. I really can't. I mean, like, you guys there, and I've got to run away somehow, and, you know, ridiculous. But anyway, go on. Well, the, the point is, if I thought of it, I might have done, but I just didn't think of it. You, <laughs> exactly. you, don't, you don't have time to think of it. But the guy's yeah. standing in front of you in your living room, you, there's no time to think. You, just, you can just react. So the, the people say, oh, I'll plan this, I'll do this, I'll do that. You, there's no plan. If if it happens, uh, it's all instinct. You, there's no plan before, after, during, or anything. Yeah. It just happens. Have there been any, um, like obviously years on now? Any any any? I mean, let's talk about the negative effects from say, uh, you know, community or physical standpoint in the general public. Has it been? Or has it been? Has the response been? It's just eventually like everyone's forgotten about it now. And getting back on that now, you said you didn't as well, but just emotionally, any any. Any issues in regards to you know what you had to do that it's affected your life and 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 how you, how are you going to move on for the future and and you know enjoy your life and continue and you know uh, as far as uh, say the, community um, you know, has anyone really forgotten about it doesn't really get brought up much or anything like that or as far as the uh, the, the the first part how it's affected me. Uh, in the uh, the community, the, the, how it's affected me in the community and how it's affected me personally, how it's affected me in the community. I was unemployed at the time. I'd been unemployed for some years. Yeah. I appeared on a national television show, uh, A Current Affair with Tracy Grimshaw, and they let me say that. They let me say that I was uh, unemployed and looking for a job. I got no job offers whatsoever after appearing on a national television show and saying I was unemployed and... Uh, uh, was looking for a job and said, I think I said I'd be prepared to do anything. And uh, I thought, now, well, how could that possibly be? And then I heard that um, a lot of our returned servicemen, current returned servicemen from the current conflicts, are unemployed and living on the streets and can't get work. Mm. And then I thought, is it because I've killed someone? Is, it, is the fact that no one offered me a job because I've killed someone, they know it and they think I might be a threat to them if I get angry. Mm. And is that is that why our servicemen can't get jobs? Because people won't give them jobs because they think our servicemen might kill them. They get angry, have an argument that they might kill them because they're soldiers, they might have killed someone. Well, the, the, I don't know if that's the answer, but I can tell you I got no offers whatsoever mm. after appearing on a national television show. Second part of your question, how did it affect me personally? Uh, did I, you know, did, yeah. was I like the movies? Was there, you know, some sort of, uh, uh, you know, after the fact, you know. Did I have nightmares? Was <laughs> I waking up screaming? Was I crying? I went, no. I don't want to, I'm trying to be, I'm trying to be, uh, give you the respect. I don't want to, you know, it's hard to be, obviously it's hard for me to ask you these questions. I mean, especially since, you know, like I hope, as you know, Don, that no one ever gets in this situation. No one's ever confronted in their home with having to defend themselves, whether it's with the firearm. I mean, you've got to do what you had to well, do, look, and I totally it's, respect it's that. It's happened before we were born, Jason, Burr, we've had burglars, and we've had these uh, people have had to deal with these situations before we were born. They're going to deal with these situations after we're, after we're gone. 
And I can tell you, in my case, it's not like the movies. I, I don't wake up screaming in the night. I don't cry myself. <laughs> it, I, I, forgot, I forgot this bloke's name about a week later. It meant nothing to me. Wow. Right. Okay, absolutely no. I didn't lose a wink of sleep over it. I, I did what I, I had to do. I acted on instinct. I, I thought, you know, uh, about this and I thought about that. Then I thought, uh, pull yourself together. You know, you've done nothing wrong. You know, don't, exactly. let, don't let this get to you. Uh, you've got more, thing, more important things to worry about. No. No, if I'd... If I'd been absent-minded and hit someone on a pedestrian crossing in my car, I'd probably feel like dirt, you know? Yeah. Because I was stupid and I did something wrong and I made a mistake and I really hurt someone or maybe killed someone. But in this situation, I think it's all about context and situation and uh, no no adverse psychological effects whatsoever. Mate, Don, I want to ask this question. This is very interesting, you know? Some people say, we, you know, we don't need anything for self-defense, be it a firearm, pepper spray or anything like that. I mean, for someone, you know, who's been in your situation. I mean, what would you like to, you know, this, this is my point of doing this podcast. What would you like to say to those people that often get on my page? I've seen them on uh, other self-defense pages on Facebook, the, the political party pages saying, well, you know, this is ridiculous. I mean, as you know, the, the, the Shooters and Fishers Party put out one of their, uh, I guess, uh, policy reforms on their website. And it said, you know, people to have, you know, ability to own firearms and genuine reason for self-defense in their home. Had about two and a half thousand likes, so that's very popular. Very, it's very good. And there was a, a couple of people you see him writing on there. Oh, this is ridiculous! You know, drop that. That's totally ridiculous. You know, this is going to cause domestic violence. Rubbish, rubbish, rubbish. What do you want to say to those people that, you know, for someone that's actually been through it, that's actually you know been through this whole situation of, of years of having to worry about being charged? You know, the things you had to do. And, and what would you tell those people? What advice would you give those people when they say, well, it's never happening to you and, and, and this is ridiculous? What do you, you know, what would you have to say to them? Well, I, I, I didn't think it would happen to me. I thought uh, there's no way in the world a crim would come into your house while a man is in the house. They might come in if there's a woman there or uh, kids on their own or something like that. But I thought a crim just won't come into a house while a man is there. But it did happen to me. And I, I left the back door open and he just walked in, in broad daylight. It did mm. happen to me. So I know it's, it can happen to me. As far as uh, the means to self-defence, well, who do crims uh, go after? They, they go after the weakest in the community. They, they, I lived at Fair, uh, Fairfield for 10 years and then I moved back to Yaguna. The, 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 the woman was smothered, an old lady was smothered with her own pillow. Her pensioners were beaten to death with their, their own golf clubs. Women were raped in front of their, their, their kids. We live in a city. These things go on. Who do the criminals exactly. attack? They, they attack the weakest members of the community. And the weakest members of the community, the elderly, the women are on their own, they need the means to defend themselves against people who are physically superior to them or are physically superior to them in numbers. So the people who decry the, uh, uh, the, uh, the uh, right to keep and bear arms and the need to have uh, weapons to defend themselves are probably strong men who will never be victims of these cowards who come into your homes and, and uh, attack you. The, if they're not likely to be victims, they can say what they like, but it's the, the women and the, uh, the elder, the vulnerable people in the community that need the means to self-defence, and it's wrong and immoral for the government to deny those vulnerable people the means to self-defence by putting legal obstacles in their way. So what's what's going to happen from here for uh, Don Brook? What's he what's he going to do for the future, mate? What's what, what's your plans, mate? Uh, anything exciting coming up for you? Anything you want to share with my listeners? Anything, you know, any other bits of advice that you think, or anything else you want to talk about before we finish off the show? Yeah, I'd like uh, all the, uh, the, uh, the 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 recent elections uh, 
800,000 people voted for the Greens because they had one party to vote for. There were several pro-shooting parties all split up and uh, you can only put one tick on the paper. You can only vote once. I'd like all the, uh, all the various uh, shooting groups to unite uh, under one banner for the next federal election so when the shooters uh, vote, we, we can tick one like the Greens and one million shooters can vote for one party with all different factions within that party mm. so our votes aren't wasted. If the Greens can do it, so can we. I'd like Pauline Hanson, the Shooters Fishers Party, LDP, all to unite under one party. The Christian Democrats all, all unite under one party and they can all be factions in the one party so we don't waste our votes. So uh, that's that's what uh, one of the things I'd like to see, yeah. Mate, I do appreciate you uh, coming on my show. I remember when I first was writing up these questions, Don, I, I was talking to a few friends and I said, you know, what, what do I say? How do I ask him these questions without asking the questions you know without asking him point blank and i said well i guess you know that's the point of the show isn't it to um you know get the information across to my listeners and 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 finally tell a story from someone because normally in this situation don a lot of people wouldn't you know want to want to come and speak to me or it doesn't matter who it was whether it's me or someone else they wouldn't want to you know they just want to let it die or forget about it or or um you know not bring it up again or you know that a fact that it could bring up issues with the you know the the burglars family and um i just want to say thanks you know, I, I really, really appreciate it. I'm glad I was able to get you on the show, and I'm glad, you know, I didn't even have to twist your arm, Don, did I? I didn't. You were yes straight away. So I, I just wanted to say thanks, and um, yeah, for sharing your story, and uh, hopefully the people that listen to this show now understand from someone that's actually been through this issue that it can happen to them. I mean, we're seeing it as you said, Don. We are seeing it every couple of days. I mean, I just saw you know last week, you know, people getting beaten up in their homes, you know, rapes. Um, just down here at my local police station, one of my good friends is a, is a detective, you know, and the, the the issues they're having, you know, with certain demographics of the country, um, you know, raping women, carrying weapons, knives. I mean, I mean, and then guess what? And if something happens and we carry some sort of weapon, I mean, we get charged, or you know, uh, I mean, it's just ridiculous. I mean, it's unbelievable. Well, you got to believe it because it's happening. I know, Don. I do appreciate your time. Hopefully we can chat again one day very soon. And uh, thanks for sharing your story with me today. I appreciate it. Thanks. Uh, it's a pleasure, Jason. Thanks very much for running the Australian Hunting Podcast. I get a lot of information from it, and it gives me the opportunity to contribute to uh, our movement. So thank you. You've been listening to an episode of the Australian Hunting Podcast. I hope you enjoyed it. See you next time.